Fish, a podcast where the fish guys at the Field Museum in Chicago talk about marine life, new and crazy species, natural history news, and fish. Who are the fish guys? We have Dr. Leo Chicken Pot Pie Smith. Hi, I'm one of the curators of fishes at the Field Museum. Dr. Matt Lemon Meringue Davis. I'm a postdoctoral fellow in fishes. And Dr. Eric Cherry Pie Algren. Hi, this is Eric Algren. I'm a uh, retired physician and a consultant for fishes at the Field Museum. And I am Beth French Silk Sansenbacher and your host. And today we are talking about systematics in fishes. So I'm going to start off by asking what is systematics? So systematics is the field of biology where we try and figure out how organisms are related to each other, and we use a variety of data to support this. So we can use uh, DNA sequence data, we can use anatomical structures, behavioral data, but what we're trying to get at is using sort of the outstanding traits of fishes in our case, trying to trace back what happened in evolution and use sort of the hints of those characters to figure out who is related to who. Yeah, so the thought is that there should, you know, there's one evolutionary history for life on Earth, and we're trying to infer that how fishes evolved and the relationships of, of different groups of fishes to one another based on this evolutionary history. So we use specific um, features like the DNA or morphological structures as characters to try and infer that. So if, if particular groups may share, uh, you know, a particular character like four limbs, yeah, for like, tetrapods, yeah, exactly, or you know, position of gills or something like there's a number of things that, but sometimes they evolve more than once. But in any case, you, you're looking at shared characters across groups to try to infer some sort of shared ancestry. So the data implies and you infer. Right. So this is tricky. This is not like, uh, you know, what you're taught in school is that a science is you make a hypothesis, you mix a couple chemicals together in chemistry lab, and then you test your hypothesis. The experiment in evolutionary biology already happened to some degree. And so it's, Rather than making a prediction, you're making retrodictions. It's a nomothetic science. It's more so, like it's more detective like, work. It's more like like history, almost. right? Yeah. So, like a good analogy is the like is insurance. So when they're figuring out your insurance rates, they make predictions based on your age, your gender, your you know past record of driving to give you a rate. But when you actually get into a car accident, you call them and they don't they don't try and make a probability that you had an accident. It's a yes or no, you had an accident and they have the evidence that your car is damaged and things like that, rather than the predictive nature of the, you know, the beginning of insurance. That was the craziest analogy. That, I, that, that, that's... that's the one that everyone always uses. What are you guys talking about? Who what are you uses, talking about? Who uses that analogy? Yeah. I if I was a 10-year-old kid, I'd be like, what are you talking, talking about, about insurance? <laughs> I have to put a claim. 10-year-old ten, ten kid should not listen to this podcast. But is, is it more like is it more like history like trying to go back and you know take like sources like a newspaper source or a diary entry or you know some artifact and trying to piece that together to figure out what exactly happened to some degree is that a bad analogy i mean it, it's it, 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 like you're putting together a puzzle of of something that happened over a course of hundreds of millions of years and we're trying to to elucidate exactly how different branches of the tree of life shot off from one another. And at some point in time, we shared a common ancestry with different branches. And what you're trying to find there is what is the evidence of that shared ancestry? What is What kind of characteristics do we have that we share? So, for example, like mammals all share certain traits with other mammals that are indicative of that ancestry. And as we move up the tree, we find these different traits, and they kind of can help parse out how different groups are related to each other. And the traits can be lost too. I mean, yeah. you know, you have tetrapods; they're not always have, present, so. right? They have you can have four limbs, but then snakes, skinks, or at least some skinks, and some a mil, I don't know, not a million, but twenty or thirty times in lizard evolution, they've lost the limbs. Yeah. And so, despite tetrapods being united by the presence of four limbs, they're they don't all have to have them. That doesn't refute the grouping tetrapod and it's just that things change over time and so one of those changes could be the reduction of so a feature how, how do you know like they, in whales how, yeah. how do you know they lost it like is there always like residual little that's an inference bones or yeah so part of, part of that is based on the evolutionary history like once we've established an evolutionary history that's based on a number of character features because what like we're not basing the entire evolutionary history of the group on just the limbs there's a number of other features that go into it including dna other morphological features and then based on that hypothesis, 
we can start to make inferences that like in these particular groups, like their ancestors and the other closely related organisms may have had the limbs, but in this particular clade or this group of organisms, they lost it. Right. And so like at that point, that's an inference that they, they most likely have lost these limbs independently. And, and that's then, happened. Right. And then once you have snakes losing the limbs, the lack of limbs in snakes is a character that unites snakes. Yeah. Right. You and know. it's something that's preserved across snakes. You don't have, as far as I know, there are no other snakes that have like where the, you know, something in development has happened and the limbs are regrown or something like right. it's consistent across snakes, but that's not always the case. Like sometimes like there's some lizard groups where like some within have lost it and others have not and things like that. But you do, you do make predictions and your experiments are going and looking at the animals themselves. Like you, you might make a prediction that animal X is related to uh seals and then you would go and find an example of animal x in a museum somewhere in a specimen jar and dissect it and look at it and see if it is in fact related to seals based on the data you collect from that animal it's it's not that you're it's not that you're making these inferences based on uh nothing or hopeful ideas and that there's no way to test uh, what your hypothesis is no there's definitely hypothesis testing going into it and the actual like tree of evolutionary relationships that we get is a hypothesis of relationships that sometimes is started based on, you know, some, just some logical thought that you might have. Like, obviously we all probably just off the top of your heads think birds are related. So, you know, you might just go to start to test that. Like are birds like a monophyletic group or like, are, do they all share a common ancestry? And those are the kinds of things you can start to test. But yeah, it's definitely hypothesis testing. Right. It's, it's more just that you don't you can't unleash the experiment. The experiment's already happened. Your question is driven by a prediction, potentially, but not the the data didn't happen by setting up an experiment. So we'd see. So you'd so so uh, a, a layperson might see something like uh, a sunfish and a, a bass and a crappie are all fish, and they all live in lakes and streams, and they all look kind of similar. They've got sort of a spiky, spiny dorsal fin, and they're sort of uh, similar looking. So so you might uh, infer that those fish are related, that they have a recent common ancestor. Is right. that right? But so that, so that gets into the the nuts and bolts of this. So, and uh, you, funny enough, the three you just picked are closely related. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, thinking, I'm, 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 yeah. I'm picturing these fish in my mind from like days when I was fishing <laughs> yeah. as a kid that they all, they all sort of look the same. Right. So the, but the question then is uh, there's a difference between what we call in systematics is a synapomorphy and a simplesiomorphy. So that's a question of a character has evolves at some point and it's only useful for inferring relationships at the point of its evolution or its loss, subsequent change to it. So in the case of having four limbs, four limbs are not indicative of a relationship between a dog and a rhinoceros because that's, it's so much further down the tree, down at tetrapods, that it's no longer relevant. Okay. So like at similarity more, in finer, that sense. At a finer scale. At a finer scale that's irrelevant. At a yeah. deeper scale, it's absolutely relevant for yeah. the tetrapod node or the, where that, that branching point in the tree of life. But when right. you're, and so that's where those kinds of questions, and that's what, you know, that's why we sit there and dissect fish or dinosaurs or whatever we're working on to try and find these sort of key characters that infer the relationship. So in the case of, Mammals, you have mammary glands, you have hair, you have a variety of things that sort of point to mammal, like all sharing a common ancestry or what we refer to as a monophyletic group, which is a group that has, that has a single ancestor and all of its descendants. Mm. So that's sort of like, you know, every group has something like that. And nat- every natural group, flowering plants, there's a single evolution of flowers. Everything that flowers is a flowering plant from that point and all, on. And all flowering plants go back to some proto flowering plant there was there was they a, all came there was some sort of a non-flowering plant some sort of angiosperm or something whatever back in the day and there was a first plant to produce a flower and all of our flowering plants today can trace their ancestry back to that right. one moment and so this is this is to distinguish it from a paraphyletic group which is when you don't have or a polyphyletic group when you don't have all the ancestors so fish is the classic example for us of a paraphyletic group so we don't think of us or mammals or birds as fish like when you ask like a, a school child um 
school child. <laughs> <laughs> if you ask a school kid um, what a fish is, they won't include us. And so that's why it becomes a paraphyletic group because you're, you're excluding some members of that group, not all of them. And so it's... What, what un, group it's un, that, like tetrapods you're talking about? Or? Amniotes and tetrapods. Like, I don't know exactly. Or fishes. Like we talked about in the first episode, like if you're going to include sharks and fishes, then obviously it has to be sharks, us, and sarcopterygians, which include tetrapods. So, right. like, so fishes should include all of those things. Just like invertebrates. So, or well, actually, let's go to something a little easier. So like uh, moths and butterflies. So all butterflies are nested within moths. So if you have butterflies, they are a natural group. All the butterflies have a single ancestor, but it's sitting inside and among all the different moth species. And so moths, to the so exclusion a, a butterf- of butterflies, are not a real group unless you include the butterflies. They're not okay. a monophyletic So a butterfly group. is a subtype of moth. Yeah. Right. A moth is not a subtype of butterfly. But also a moth isn't a real group without the butterflies being in it. It's sort of like a... Like a Sort of like a shell group. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like a, a subset of it, you know. And so that's the distinction there. And then a polyphyletic group is the other kind of grouping, which is when you, if you were to, like, group homeotherms, so the warm-blooded animals. So if you had uh, birds on one side and mammals on another place, they completely independently evolve warm-bloodedness. You know, they're obviously oh, okay. they're tied back somewhere down at the base, you yeah. know, of yeah, amniotes or something. But, like, they're not – they don't – you know, they don't share a single common ancestor and... A recent it, one. A recent one. And it's not just a, qua- a case where we've excluded the butterflies from the moths. It's like, these are completely independent. But that is a character that unites them. And so this is why systematics is hard. You go like, oh, we point to all these really easy characters we're talking about now. But there are, you know, you know like the fine details of a wing in a, you know, a pterosaur versus a bird versus... Yeah. Uh, so some, that- you know... Well, then you have, get, you have to like, get the features more then yeah. because, like, the specific bones may make up the wing in a, in a bat's wing versus that in a bird versus that in a pterosaur. And, like, getting at those finer features helps elucidate the history. Right, then that's... So does that, does that, this could be a really dumb question, um, but does that cause, like, a lot of uh, debate within... What a dumb question. <laughs> I'm, I kid. Within uh, systematics. No, nobody, nobody ever argues within systematics no, I mean, about relationships of organisms. Obviously, everything. <laughs> <laughs> we all. We, oh God. It's all we, pet, it's all we pet all, hypotheses. Um, you know the, the the theory is that it's all coming from one point, right? That life started at one point and branched out from that point. It's not like it's coming from six different points. Right. Well, so, no, but that's what you were just saying. It's that in some cases you say it is coming from six different. Well, points. a feature might be, but not. But that's we, there, I mean. we, think, we believe that there's, it's obviously going to have some hiccups because of hybridization and other things, but essentially we believe that there's one true tree of life of how everything evolved. Yeah, and it's all from one common ancestor. It, like if you went all the way down the tree of life, it would be from a common ancestor. It's not like there was it's, there, it's not like there was six independent. It's not like branching off points yeah. for or like for six, life itself. Yeah, like there's like, six independent trees. There's no. one tree. But, I mean, the current working hypothesis based on. All kinds of different data is that there's a single. Yeah, I mean, there's some people that think that at the base with the various flavors of non metazoan animals, so the various kinds of bacteria and bacteria like things, that there was so much sort of interchange and stuff that it's like a little goofy in parts of that. So some people called it a ring and some people called it sort of a web at the base. But like once you kind of get into metazoa, the only sort of cases where you have things coming back together is hybridization events. You know, you can't, but at the same time, we do have cases where there's probably genes from other organisms getting uh, absorbed, isn't the right way, but like transferred, transferred into the, into, uh, another thing. So you can have individual genes and things like that move in, but at the, or, and hybridization events for two species mate and produce a fertile offspring can obviously kind of create a connection that, and what was otherwise be a uniformly branching tree of life. And so in the field of systematics, you are... Way, you are most of the time way out at the tips of the branches of this tree, comparing the various segments of it and and acknowledging that they come from a certain branch and trunk of the tree. But you you in the systematics field, you're not so concerned with the the very initial branch of that tree. There's there's somebody that sort of I don't, well maybe sorry like everyone sort of randomly assorts across the tree of life. We it's because there's such an overwhelming problem to try and resolve this, we tend not to exactly hit upon the exact same nodes. We so yeah, there's someone works on like Matt works on this group called the Lopiforms, which are these deep sea lizard fishes and a few shallow water forms. 
there's not that many other people that work on aloporms, but and that's a big group. I mean, that's a few hundred species. There's somebody else that works on all fishes. There's somebody else that works on all vertebrates. There's somebody else that works on all metazoa. There are people that work on those nodes, and so someone that works across all metazoa is not necessarily going to get into the finer details of jellyfish relationship. Someone works at all sort of levels because that's the part that interests them. Yeah, I mean, across the world, there at any given moment, I don't know, probably thousands and thousands of scientists all working on the relationships of life on Earth, and they overlap in certain areas, but at the end of the day, you end up with lots of people working at those relationships from lots of different angles, whether they're plants, bacteria, Would you call birds. all those people working in systematics? So is that- yeah. 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 yeah I, mean, all, there's, I bet yeah. there's over 10,000. I was going to say, do you work with a lot of paleontologists then as well? I mean, because they do systematics. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, yeah. and Matt and I like to, Matt's done, published more of it than I have, but um, work, actually work with the geological and paleontological specimens ourselves too. Because it's all part of the evolutionary history of these organisms. Yeah, they're just organic. Like, in some cases, there are things that have gone extinct. In some cases, they are fossil examples of of some groups that are still alive today. But it's still part of that evolutionary history. Like, there was one evolutionary history. And not all things have made it to the present day. So Most haven't. Yeah, most haven't. And there's a lot of diversity we don't even know about because we only see what's left because of fossilization. Like, if you think about it, there are lots Mm -hmm. of different things we'll never have any idea about. Um, and that's just part of the thing. I mean, it's part of the detective work of trying to figure out the history of life on Earth. And the, the back to your question about people working across the, all the tree of life and things like that, there is some sort of, there is a hint of a bias towards people identifying species and working at the tips of the tree of life. And there's also groups like birds or mammals mm-hmm. and vertebrates in general and butterflies that get more attention than mm-hmm. tardigrades or, Bacteria. or some worms. Everybody worm, likes tardigrades. You know, or like... You know, enteroprox. I mean, all these phyla, the, you know, like the you know peanut worms, the cyplunculids, like all these things that there's probably not too many world's experts on these things. And so, what you end up happening, like what ends up happening, is that a lot of people that work, a lot of those weird enigmatic phyla are marine invertebrates, and so you tend to have people that are invertebrate systematists that specialize across a whole different group, and they have a sort of a larger burden. You know, they're like, they have to know something about these worms and they have to know something about shrimp and they have to know something about everything because they're just sort of get thrown that, you know, that's the hand they were dealt. Right. You know, there's a few groups like mollusks, like the squids and clams and bivalves where people can focus because there's enough interest and enough species that they're real. But kind of everybody goes back to some sort of uh, a, a certain level of ancestor organism and then sort of kind of stops there, except for a very specialized group of people who might be looking at, there, like like you said, like things before metazoans. Well, there's some people that are more interested in, say, the evolution of a particular feature. Like somebody who wants to study the evolution of warm-bloodedness, like how many times that evolved in the tree of life, may look at mammals and they may look at birds. Like they may not be so... Um, organism specific, they may be question specific, right? Because that happens again in sharks and tunas. Yeah, all have warm bloodedness because of the way they swim and things. And what is that called? What's the scientific term? Endothermic. Endothermic. Okay. But but you'll have people that are more into a specific evolutionary question, and then they may use our hypotheses of trees and relationships to get at those questions. So they'll use the hypothesis of relationships to test their questions. Right. So, I mean, you, someone could be interested in. Why are all Arctic things white or almost all Arctic things white? Or like you know? how many times has flight evolved? Yeah, you know? like, you know, that, if you Scales. did flight, I mean, think about that. From? Insects, there's probably multiple origins of flight in insects. You know, if you start working through this thing about flight, it gets a little, it gets yeah. complicated. You've got you reptiles, big trees. you've got mammals, you've got, you've got all kinds of things. you a question can you guys come up with a with a good example of where molecular data contradicted what was expected based on morphological data eric that was a very good question that you had and i think that leads into our fish of the week and uh i'm looking at a small fish it's very curved um it looks about Maybe if you stretched it out, maybe about like seven inches long. It's white right now. It has small eyes, and it has very kind of feathery fins, um, uh, dorsal and anal feathery like fins. Eric, what do you think? Uh, yeah, what, what I like that. It's, uh, it's maybe it's like a little bit translucent. It looks like it's got the like pores 
like large pores across its head, and um, uh, otherwise, uh, it's uh, just looks like one of these uh, mysterious sort of ster- large mouth, sort of mysterious sterile samples that you get in the uh, in the lab. Does it look like a whale? <laughs> um, it looks about as distant from a whale as a mackerel. Yes. So, or a tuna. So your your guys' observations are good. So as one might guess from the large pores, small eyes, flabby and translucent, this is a deep sea fish. So these are things we sort of hit upon. So when you go down deep, you have smaller eyes because there's no point in light. You have big pores because you basically need water motion is how you're sensing things because you're in complete darkness. So, so we've hit upon some of these in some of the sensory system podcasts before. So getting back to your question of there ever been sort of a problematic group that was resolved with DNA. What is this guy called? Barbarossia rufa, the whalefish. Yeah, it makes me angry. It doesn't look anything like a whale. I I think they're called whalefish because they have big flabby mouths. What kind of whale do you not think it looks like? Any. What about (laughs) it? They're bright red in life, actually, so the red disappears. Uh, So this species is not. that doesn't make it any more whale-like. I don't know any red whales. Yeah, I don't know any red whales. It's got a big, I mean, it's got a mouth. It's got a big lower jaw, you know, lower on the body mouth that opens up like a whale. Groupers have big mouths, too. But they're in the middle. It's the center of the body. Center of the, you know. I think it, it has some superficial resemblance to, like, a giant fat whale. I mean, just the head, the tail. Like, it doesn't look like a sperm whale or like a... <laughs> or is it like a baleen whale? I don't know. An orca? Yes. An orca. Anyway. But back to yes. Eric's question. This is a, a good example of where DNA pointed to a new sort of hypothesis that wasn't supported or wasn't suggested by morphological data. And then when they went back to look at the morphological data, it was like a eureka moment or something. So this the paper came out a few years ago now uh, from a bunch of... Uh, a series of collaborators that were at Virginia Institute of Marine Science, uh, Japan, Australia, and the Smithsonian Institution. And what they showed was that there were three groups of things that we all knew were, well, there's five groups, there were thought to be five groups of whale fishes. So there was, and there were three of them were thought to be different families, the Cetomimids, the Mirapinids, and Megalomicterids. And what they found when they first sequenced one of the mirapinids was that the DNA sequence, they did the entire mitochondrial genome, so this is a little tiny piece of the genome, but it's separate from the nuclear genome. And what they found was that the sequence was identical or maybe one or two base pairs different between a mirapinid, these tape tail things that look like a long kind of worm with a little sort of wings, and one of these giant whalefishes like the one we have here. And so when they saw that, the first thing that everyone thought was it was a DNA contamination because this is what... Obviously, not to be disparaging, yeah. but a lot well, of times... Well, that's, that's not what the people who found that thought. No, that's... The, so what did they the, this is Well, they thought that this was the larvae or the female or the male. There was some issue that, like, this was a different life history portion of the of the whalefish. So the mirapinid and the whalefish proper Cetomimidae were the same thing. But the ichthyological... Many in the ichthyological community suggested that maybe that this was a contamination or something they had sequenced, you know, because in the lab, once you extract the DNA, it's all just moving clear liquids around, and it's really easy to make a mistake and amplify the wrong thing. Like maybe a tube got switched tube around. Switch, you know, anything like that. And the problem is you the only way you can really test this is to go get another specimen, and the problem is these are deep sea, especially the, the mirror pinheads, these tape tails that are worm-like, they don't come up that frequently. So in order to do it again, you have to wait. You might wait two years before another one is collected and someone knows that it's a mirror pinhead and saves it for the DNA analysis. And so eventually they got more specimens. They got some more male, uh, some more of the adults. And what they found was that the mirror pinidae, the tape tails, these little worm-like things, the cetomimids or the whalefishes proper, and then a third group, the megalomicterids, which are these like hairy little bastards. Um <laughs> were all actually the same things and that the mirapinids were actually the larvae of the whalefishes, the megalomicterids, these hairy ones. Megalomicterids were the males and the cetomimids were the the hairy lips were the males? Yeah, I think that's what they're called. And then the whalefishes were the females. And so what ended up happening was these three completely independent families that we thought were related based on morphological data initially were shown with DNA data to be the same thing. And that then with once they had that, you, that you could, and that you had this prediction 
that these things were related, you could actually go in and sort of... They used the DNA hypothesis. They went back and, and based on that hypothesis, they, they looked at the three separate families again and identified characteristics that indicated that these were, in fact, the exact same species at different stages in their life history. Right. And so this is sometimes referred to as reciprocal illumination, where like we get some information from one part and then take it to do something else. Some people might call it verificationist a little from a... That you've got this hypothesis and now you're going to go prove it. Somebody might call it science. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I mean, like, but, but you see sexual dimorphism in, in humans. Uh, uh, an alien's race might come down to planet Earth and see some uh, bipedal creatures walking around that, have, uh, uh, that are uh, relatively short stature and, and possess breasts and think that they are a different species than the uh, taller ones that don't have breasts. Or like if they thought a toddler, like if they collected a bunch of toddlers from like a yeah. daycare and they all, they labeled them as a separate species, not yeah. realizing that they're they all different shapes and, and sizes. I, and I yeah. think that's what's important, you know, for the DNA, especially for deep seas. Like you can't watch these guys. It's not like you can go and only get a cross section. Yeah. You can't yeah. go into a reef and scuba and actually watch these things and like yeah. see things hatch and fertilize. So you can no, have actual observation of the life history of a lot of deep sea groups is, is hard. Yeah. So here, just so you guys can see, and we'll try and get, permission to use these images. So here you can see the mirapinid, so it's a big long worm like thing. That's the that's the larvae. This hairy thing here is the male, so it's got these bigger fins, got a big bit belly and then you have on the hey, bottom the male's got a big belly just like in humans I mean, and then you got this flabby yeah, thing here that's the, the female if I, mean, I looked at that I'd be like yeah those are totally different things and, and that's not, what they thought they thought they, they were the different species no. and the molecular data showed them to be the same but you know maybe we'll try and put a couple other larvae on there like this shouldn't have come as a big surprise to ichthyology because there's plenty of other cases where we people have described whole families based on the larvae of something or the yeah. adults I mean, marine larvae is often very morphologically different from I mean, the adult think, forms I mean, think about a caterpillar pillar and a moth. Well, I mean, like, this, it's, it's sort of the same. Yeah. 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 Or it is exactly the same. Yeah. The DNA that you would collect from a caterpillar would be exactly the same as the DNA you'd collect from, or almost exactly the same as the DNA you'd collect from the butterfly that, that metam- metamorphosed. Well, be exactly, in that case, if it was the exact same individual, it would be exactly If it was the exact same individual, yeah. yeah. Right. Right. And so these are cases where molecular inference is, is really useful and right. important, so... And this is the kind of case where, again, we had a, an incongruence between morphological and molecular data. Um, but in hindsight, going back with further investigation, we figured out, you know, what was going on with this particular story. And that's, you know, that's kind of what it's all about when you have incongruence. And it's, you know, this is a nice case for, like, the molecular morphological people because the people involved are mostly one or the other work together to solve, like, a, like an <laughs> yeah. outstanding problem. Yeah. Amazingly, sometimes people can work together. Yes. That's, that's when science is the best, when it's exciting and new. So getting back to, um, you know, all the different researchers, and if there's, you know, there's many of them working on lots of different things throughout time, how do you guys agree on anything? Well, that gets at the method. So yeah. in the... Prior to, say, like 1950, it was sort of power, personality, and sort of the ar- the sort of a flowy argument you make. Like, well, you know, we think, you know, something like tetrapods, you know, look, we have all these tetrapods. You sort of show, I think the evidence was still character-driven. You know, you would still put forth, like, I think this character is important, but you couldn't weigh them. You would sort of have to make arguments. Be like logical inference. Or special pleading. Like, I think that the compound eye is awesome, and so therefore that's what unites this group or... You know, you sort of made a weighted argument from that perspective. Beginning in the 50s, you start having numerical methods come forward where people would put, uh, you know, characteristics into like a checkbox, like has limbs, has whatever, and then ran computer algorithms that would solve, or you could even do them by hand to some degree, to find the ones that were most similar, which gets to the question that we sort of started with, with the shared derived character versus just shared characteristics. Some people still believe that you should just use the overwhelming majority of shared characteristics regardless of when they evolved, mm. remove that. And then in the 60s, you get a further refinement with something that's called cladistics or phylogenetic systematics, where you were looking for just these shared derived characters. So whatever characters evolved at that node are the most important ones so that, you know, tetrapods are relevant for the mammal, the, you know, rhinoceros versus dog. And so that sort of set up a sort of a logical or philosophical philosophical framework for figuring out how fishes or whatever were related. And then it's been refined over the last 
50 years on the basis of improvements of how we determine homology or how we decide whether the character is actually, it's easy to point to an example that's really easy and say this is a derived feature, but if you don't know how the animals are related at all, how do you decide which is the primitive characteristic and which is the derived? Like, is the presence of teeth on the vomer, which is a roof bone mouth, is that primitive or is that derived? I don't know. I mean, like, it becomes something that you have to, that relies on our understanding of fishes at that time. And so as that, as our understanding of fish relationship changes, all of these hypotheses may reverse of what's the derived character. And so as we start developing those, we need finer methods to sort of help solve that problem. And then DNA brought in a whole new series of problems or, you know, or excitement, however you want to look at that, but new things we had to resolve and new decisions. And that's even more complicated because there are different models of molecular evolution. Like, you know, are you more like the change from like G's and C's have three bonds with each other and A's and T's have two bonds with each other. Is it easier to switch from a G to a C versus a G to an A because of the way these things bind up? Like Mm -hmm. when you're actually having little DNA changes in your genome, all these things can be modeled. We can go like, well, this is more likely and we can weight all these things and we can put all these different things into it. And so all this stuff points to where people fight over things. Every step of the way, someone could have a different opinion because at some level, a lot of those are opinions. And we try and make them as objective as possible. Mm-hmm. And having explicit well, methods helps, but it's Well, it's there's, hard. A, there's a lot of different scientists and a lot, a lot of them have very different academic backgrounds. And there's a lot of different philosophical opinions on how to evaluate evolutionary relationships. And some of it's not even philosophical. Some of it's like mathematical, like... There are different ways to mathematically approach inferring those relationships, like in terms of, you know, different schools of probability or, you know, all kinds of things. And, um, and that all plays into it. But at the end of the day, there's actually a remarkable agreement on a large swath of how things are related to each other, even given some of these different philosophies and different ways of inference. And so, I mean, something to keep in mind is, so if you, if you were to just have a simple like cladogram, these little trees of how things are related, just that are sort of like what we, this will be up on the blog entry. Yeah. So like something like a genealogy that you picture moms, dads and things like that, it's a little simpler in that we just have a single, you know, there's, you know, if there were 13 species of butterfly that we were trying to figure out how they were related, it is the number of rearrangements of those 13 species is so large that that's about what a computer can try every single rearrangement of those 13 things. Once you get up to 14 or 15 species that you're trying to figure out, you can't make every comparison of all these characteristics. Even the most powerful computers of today can't right, do that? Right, because it, it, it explodes polynomially. And so that's about where the limit, at any given time, it's, you know, since I've been a systematist, it was like 12, then it's 13. But you're talking to like to look through 13 or 14 species, how they're related, you're looking at you know, months to years of computer time if you actually wanted to exhaustively search them all. Yeah, every permutation. Right. And so we've, you know, so the, a lot of how we figure out how these are related. So basically we code all the characters like has limbs, has bone teeth, has hair, whatever, into a giant sort of square matrix of like kind of like a Excel spreadsheet or something like that, like with a series of zeros and ones. And then this program sort of resolves sort of the optimal path through that um, to figure out how fishes are related or whatever are related. And that's what the computer is checking all the different, well, if this zero and this one here are homeotherms homeotherms monophyletic or is it, you know, you know, is it mammals are related? You know, I mean, but like that's a simple. And this is a, this is a lot of like probability. Uh, you can derived. Or? There there are ways to do it on a probability basis. The DNA most molecular or DNA based phylogenies are based on a probabilistic model, either like Bayes theorem Bayes or theorem. or maximum likelihood. So mm-hmm. there are different kind of probability schools of thought on ways to approach the problem. So like even just within systematics, you may have a, a subset of people that are like, I'm, you know, they just want to work on it from a Bayesian perspective or from a likelihood perspective. I mean, you get, you definitely get breakdowns of subsets of people. And then there are people that, you know, are happy to try lots of different methods of inference and see if the hypotheses hold up across different ways. I mean, it's just, it gets complicated even within the discipline. Let's yeah. get into specifics. So Matt, the group you work on, so what, what, what do you do? Like what different techniques do you use to figure out how these um, I'm kind of, stuff is related? I believe that there's, if, the, if there is, there's one evolutionary history and on some level all of the data should be pointing towards that evolutionary history. So I'm kind of interested in looking at things from both the morphological, so using morphological features and um, molecular like DNA features. So I'm, you know, more interested in, say, a total evidence approach um, at taking into account all the different kinds of data. Um, and sometimes the data doesn't necessarily agree. So you may do, 
you may get at the evolutionary relationships of something based on morphological data, and it may disagree on some levels with the same the same groups of organisms done with molecular DNA data. Um, but I think it's kind of interesting when when you have slight disagreements on on a broad scale. A lot of these things agree pretty substantially, but you may get finer scale disagreements. Can you give me an example? For example, like you may you well, may I, find I with morphological and molecular data that tetrapods themselves are they all share a common ancestry. You may you may get that exact same hypothesis, but you may have a slight disagreement on the placement of turtles within tetrapods. Right. That's something that's been kind of debated that comes up differently when you use morphological data versus molecular data. And so then you kind of have to get at the question, well, why, what is the difference here? And, and there could be any number of reasons. It could be that um, the morphological characters you're using, you need more of them across that wide swath of taxa, like maybe you weren't getting enough signal. Could be that the molecular genes you're using are slowly evolving, um, so you're not capturing the signal, or it could be they're too fast. Like maybe they've evolved because different rates of DNA will evolve at different, or different types of DNA will evolve at different rates. So it could be the, that all the genes one was using were things that evolved so quickly that we have something that happens that's called saturation, where the actual signal gets kind of parsed out because there's been so many mutations that it's hard to have the signal anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so you start getting at more fine-scale questions of, like, why are we having these differences? And a lot of the problems, so Matt used the example of the turtles. Another example that would be true are the evolution of whales or the evolution of snakes. And what happens is, in the case of whales, the morphological uh, hypothesis was based largely on teeth, but whale teeth are kind of screwy and everything about it's a whale is screwy. And, right, and think, well, and think, you know, in baleen and things like that, it's complicated, but... The point is that it's a lot of times the differences between molecular morphological data come down to these enigmatic groups. Like, where did snakes come from? Well, a lot of the characters that we use to figure out how lizards are related are based on limb characters mm-hmm. or biting characteristics. And the, the, if any of you have ever looked at the skull of a snake, it's all messed up so that they can open it up all wide. And it doesn't have any of the limbs, and everything's all messed up for being snake-like. And with whales, they're all messed up. Every And so... You know, there might be some desire to push it towards the molecular thing. And, you know, same with all of metazoa, like how is a worm related to a fish is related to a, like a clam. You, there is some part of us that wants to just like throw our hands in the air and be like, well, the DNA will figure this out. You know, how, what could I possibly learn? But then you have, if you start going down deep, especially with like metazoa, it may be whether something's a deuterostome or a protostome, which is all about like the first sort of germ cells, and, or not the germ cells, but the first sort of somatic cells and how they actually split and everything like that. And it's amazing that how right sort of these, like sort of some of the early 18th century and, and later scientists were on how all these organisms were related based on these early developmental stuff. I mean, and it makes sense that, you know, if there is some sort of relationship between how, you know, there's something, a phrase called ontogeny recapitulates phylogeny, which at some level we are seeing earlier life forms or not life forms, but earlier stages in development sort of look more like each other if you're related, you know, if you, right. as you go back in time, everything looks more similar. So like, like human fetuses start out, they look like little fish. Right. Like, and like, and further back, like in, a little dolphin fetus or they look like a little yeah. dog fetus. I mean, or, yeah. yeah. I mean, so that's the thing is like, because of this, this trajectory that things tend to have, we can, people were able to infer things that DNA is largely supported. There's been stu- some stuff, but it's like, how does a sponge related to a worm? I mean, that is, you know, yeah, there's, some, there's some level yeah. where sometimes yeah. the morphological features are so widely divergent. It makes it a challenge. And on some, and in those cases, molecular information or DNA information um, can help can help a lot with that. So I, like personally, I kind of like looking at things with both approaches. Like I'm not an either or person. Um, you know, I'm I'm interested in trying to get at those evolutionary relationships, and I think that there's more than one way to get at that, and that if there's one history, that different types of data should reflect that. Mm-hmm. Um, and like I said, in a lot of ways a lot of that data, whether it's morphological or molecular, are largely congruent. And then when you have the incongruence, it's kind of interesting, and there's usually reasons that we can get at for why that is. How many how many characteristics do you normally look at? That's, well, that's Only where... Only three. That's where I, morphological yeah, like three, stuff... Three characteristics, and that's it. The, the thing with morphological data is that it's kind of up to the researcher to to identify these characters. There's, there's a lot of work and time that goes into to morphological studies because you have to sit down and you need to do the comparative work across all these different organisms. And if you're looking at the bones, then that means you have to prepare the specimens so you can see the bones. Yeah. Um, 
you know, maybe you're working with muscles, so you have to prepare all these specimens to look at muscles. So it's, a, I mean, it's time consuming. And then you have to learn the anatomy of all the structures so you can identify these differences. Because it's not always as simple as like this one has a normal eye and this one has a freak eye. Well, this is like, what scientists, <laughs> biologists yeah. have been doing since there was a science of, of uh Biology. This is going back to what the the 18th century and, yeah. and 19th century. This is Even when 16th century. 16th century. This is what scientists did: is they took animals and and, yeah. and killed them and cut them up and 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 made notes on what they looked like. Yeah, the different parts, and that's morphological data. Right, and mm-hmm. so in the Matt and I are similar that we both use morphological and molecular data. But one of the things, in addition to just trying to figure out where the differences are, interesting. You also can't incorporate fossils if you don't have the morphological data. So you well, know, that's it, all you have is morphological data. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. And, but there's plenty of cases. It's like you can pretend, we can pretend like we can go into the collection and get DNA out of every fish in the world, but the reality is that there's probably 40 or 50,000 species of fish, and we probably have DNA available somewhere in some museum or some lab some researcher has for maybe 12,000, 13, maybe 15,000 of them because you had to have collected it and prepared it knowing that you wanted to do DNA work. And so when we put everything into formaldehyde and formalin that then go into the collections, that basically makes the DNA inaccessible. So all the vast collections here at the Field Museum are for fishes are not good for getting DNA out. But they're good for morphological data. Right. And so and there's going to be also cases where we have a single specimen that was caught and we know somehow we know it's new, you know. And so we could take a little tiny piece of a fin and do the molecular work, but we can't actually prepare the bones for for study because it's only based on a single specimen. And so if you don't have this, not only is the combined approach or what we sometimes refer to as the total evidence approach of using molecular morphological better empirically in the sense that like you're taking all sort of evolutionary evidence into account, Mm -hmm. but at the same time you can put in taxa that only are known from fossil record or only known from a DNA sample and a whole specimen that we couldn't look at the skeleton or just the skeleton and we can actually put everything together and it's the only way we can really start doing this. There's some people that don't think you should do that, though. I mean, there's some people that are diehard believers in just DNA and that morphological data. You know, there's too many times. It's just things, confounding. Yeah, there's too much convergence. Well, like, yeah, especially with fish, though, too, because, like, different colors, I mean, simply. I, I could understand their logic because, like, you could have a fish that's related that are two totally different colors. Right, you could have the same species have three exactly. different sets of colors. And it, that's just totally confusing. Yeah. You could have the same species and it looks three different ways or four different ways uh-huh. during, depending but on where it is where the, the that's just where the science gets complicated. I mean, yeah. the, the, the trick is you just have to do the work to figure those things out. And, like, when people study these things long enough, they identify, like, oh, this species has different color patterns across its range. And, it, oh, it could be because of diet. Like, that's where it takes all kinds. And it's not just that people that study evolutionary relationships that figure this out. It's ecologists and people that work on the life history and people that work on all kinds of things. I mean, at the end of the day everybody's kind of working together on some general right evolutionary trajectory of studying these things and as you get closer to the tips like eric asked about earlier you take stri- like bars so vertical sort of stripes along a fish so you might might not want to put has bars in or has stripes if they're horizontal is in a, in a giant matrix of how all fishes are related but i assure you if you go into clown fishes all the little nemony fishes like finding nemo the ones that have three stripes there's three of them, and they form a little group. Like whereas the ones with the single stripe or two stripes form different groups altogether. And that in that case, it is useful. And so, at some level, you want to have this like general view that characters are will all sort themselves out if you had everything. And obviously, that's probably true. But um, this is sort of like the saturation problem. Matt was talking about molecular data, but at the, at the level that you're asking, if you were looking at clownfishes and only wanted pure skeletal structures, there's not going to be very many. Some of them are going to be color. Yeah, their skeletons and they're going to be, be beautiful, though. fairly conservative. Like, right. you're not going to find a whole ton of osteological bone differences between, between two things that between... separated 10 years ago. It's also worth noting, too, that molecular work is considerably more expensive than morphological work. Well, only in the sense that someone already went out and caught all those fish in the collection to, to redo Yeah, yeah, yeah. To do the starting collect- from scratch. Yeah, not taking into account the collections, like the actual collecting of the material. Because somebody has to collect the molecular data, like the tissues or the... Right. Somebody has to collect the fish. Like, at the end of the day, all, all those studies require collection-based work. Don't you think it's weird that you could look at an organism and not know anything about it? Or, you know, transversely, you know work with DNA and not fully understand like yeah and that's again, a like hang up how how you how like what's the actual processes behind you know replicating data uh, DNA and getting it to work and you know how genes transfer 
things like that. I mean, don't you? Wouldn't you want a more holistic? Wouldn't you want a full understanding of both? I feel like it would give you <laughs> well, I better data and a better understanding. Yeah, but not all, not all research That's is an interesting like, philosophical like, question. Yeah, then there's certainly there's some sciences that get that get hung up on that, and they'll be like, oh, that person just works with DNA. I mean, you they can have a robot do the uh, do the analysis, and a robot knows nothing about anything, right? Well, I, I mean, mean, you can no, just put analysis, it all in a tray and have a robot do it. Yeah. The analysis needs thought. I mean, the, the thing is, like, there might be somebody out there, like we said before, that maybe they're only interested in studying the evolution of flight. Like, they're not a specialist on birds or fish or anything, so they're really just interested in having the trees as a framework for their hypothesis of testing flight, like how many times this evolved or something. Like, not everybody who's going to use trees is an expert on that particular group. Right. I mean, and the thing is, that, so your question is, should you know something about your organism? Well, a lot of people that do DNA work go out and catch the fish themselves. I mean, they certainly know a lot. They wouldn't be asking the question if they didn't know something about the organism. But it's certainly not a requisite. But at the same time, that's sort of a... It's kind of like a researcher a, to do it. And it's... It, that's a it's fairness a, question or something. Yeah, I mean, like, and, does it matter? It doesn't matter. Like, but... Like, no, it, it does it, matter. It, no, it doesn't. Yes, I mean, it like, does. Like, if you're, in, <laughs> if you're in the discipline... Like, let's say you're an ichthyologist. If... You can you can easily come up with a hypothesis based on molecular data alone. But if you don't know anything about your organism, how are you going to choose the proper taxon sampling? Like, how are you going to, you know, you may you may even mis-ID the fish and have the wrong species in the analysis because you didn't ID it properly. Like, knowledge of the organism totally matters. I'm not saying that it doesn't matter. I'm just saying it doesn't. It could be done with zero knowledge. Yeah, and it, it could be done you could, poorly you, with zero knowledge. Yeah. No, but you could contact... You know, four natural museums get tissue samples from every single grouper that anyone has ever collected. And then you could do a phylogeny of how all those groupers are related, where your advisor gave you the primers to do, use in the molecular lab and told you exactly how to do everything so that you were basically just like just a robot. Just a pipette monkey. Just yeah. a pipette monkey. And then that your advisor could tell you exactly how to, what the way he or she analyzes the data, and you do the exact same thing like a recipe. And then you could spit out a tree, and you know not know anything try, about the actual. And then you could try and write a paper and be like this. And you could because there's an existing taxonomy based on the last couple hundred years. You could be like this genus of groupers, Epinephalus, you know, was not monophyletic. The you know, Dermatolepis was let nested with inside Epinephalus. And you could write a paper. It wouldn't be very exciting. It wouldn't be very interesting. But it would get published. But it would get published. Maybe. <laughs> it would but probably get published. But that doesn't seem like this, this, this student is actually learning anything. No. Well, in the, in the case of the groupers, I just want to make it clear. In case my friend that works on groupers says, I'm not talking about him. <laughs> There's no question that papers are better and that taxon sampling is, so that's picking exactly what taxa you sequence and put it or, or look at anatomically is really important. But it doesn't, everything about knowing more about fish improves a paper. Well, somebody can always do something poorly and get it through. Like, I mean, it's always possible to do something and not well. Like, that's not like doing something well is never a prerequisite for doing something. I'm just saying that, like, Should if you want to be taken seriously, maybe in your field, it's worth taking the extra time to learn something. I, about I absolutely organisms. agree. I'm just saying it's not. It's not. It's a. No, I could go philosophically. Out, I could yes. go out tomorrow and buy a sewing kit and make myself a duffel bag and try to sell no it. No way! <laughs> but like, <laughs> that doesn't mean it's going to be any good. Somebody may buy it because they want a cheap. Yeah, maybe they wanted bag. a cheap duffel bag. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not saying I support what I just said. No, I'm just I know, saying I know like you empirically, don't. it's not. It's not it's, impossible by any stretch for no, someone yeah, to just you're right. with no it's, knowledge it's at the impossible. DNA level, with no knowledge at the analytical level, and no knowledge about fish could theoretically get a PhD doing that in this day and age. No, I, I don't disagree with that. You're not wrong. The question is, will those people be successful past the point of getting a PhD? Probably not, but some people think getting a PhD is success in itself. Sure. That's true. Do you think the reverse is true, that it's important to like understand PCR and DNA and how that yeah, works, or is that is. just a tool that you can... It's not as... I mean, we're talking about molecular data like it's just cookie-cutter, easy to collect, but it's yeah. also difficult to do that. I mean, there's a lot of science that goes into collecting molecular data. Like, we feel like it's a, like a process, like an easy process right now, 
but that's neglecting the fact that lots of researchers spent a lot of time and money trying to even figure out how to do this stuff. Well, systematists um, don't, don't figure this stuff out. Biochemists figure this out, right? Yeah, all kinds of people figure right. this stuff out. But it's the same thing with looking at the bones. It's like somebody like Taylor in this case when, when, uh, and his predecessors figured out that we could stain the bone blue and you know used all these chemicals to digest away all the muscles in a fish so we can actually have sort of a wet skeleton called a clear and stained fish that we could look at anatomically and compare to other skeletons, but still have them like flexibility so that you could open and close its mouth and things that you don't get on a dried skeleton or like a, like a dinosaur or something. And so someone figured all that out. And so the PCR and the sequencing is the, you know, is the tool in the same sense that the cleared and stained fish is. And so then when we're actually sitting there dissecting and comparing the structures, that's homology assessment. And when we do DNA sequencing, there's a homology assessment stage too. Like you can have a ribosomal gene, which are these things that kind of look like an airport terminal and that they, they have loops and stems and they have all sorts of like three-dimensional shape. And that when you actually try and align those things, you can, because of their shape, you can actually have different lengths of sequences, or you almost always have different lengths of sequences, and figuring out that this A is the same as this A and not the same as this other A, or that this A and T are the same, is complicated, and there's science that goes in that, and so anyone that disregards that is equally you know, ignorant of that and closed-minded. So to pretend like this is all straightforward isn't... No, it's not easy to collect molecular data either. I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of troubleshooting that goes into it. There's a lot of time and investment that goes into it. Like, you have to know what you're doing on the molecular data collection end as well. It's not, it's really not as simple as just sitting down and getting all that data. Like, it takes a considerable amount of time. Some things can be that simple. I mean, there are, you can, you know. Maybe, like, maybe if you designed a, like, maybe you want to just get CO1 of, like, 35 individuals of the same species. And then once you've got it working on one, you're going to get it working on all of them. Right. That, that, that might be simple, but, like, for a larger, broad-scale study. For interesting, most interesting questions, it's not simple. I agree completely. I'm just saying. to agree, disagree, or want to ask what the fish, tweet us your question or send us a topic suggestion at fm underscore what the fish. So if you're enjoying our podcast, you can also find us on iTunes. And if you're enjoying it and you are on iTunes, please uh, rate and give us a comment. And for this week, so long and thanks for all the fish. Fish.